Good morning. Good morning. Great to be back. For those of you who are here um, yesterday, it's such a rare occurrence that when I come back and speak the second time, there are still people that come. So I'm, I'm amazed. So thank you uh, very much for that. I was um, at a conference uh, a while back, and a guy called Chris Kandir um, uh, was speaking at, at this event. And um, he asked us to consider this situation. You're on a plane to New York, and you're sitting next to someone that you don't know. And you're in the habit of uh, reading the Bible, and so you take it out and you begin reading, uh, knowing that your neighbor has clocked this. About three hours into the flight, an announcement comes over the PA saying that the plane has hit mechanical problems and that it's in free fall towards the sea, and it will take two minutes for the plane to enter the water. The question he asked us was this, what would you say to your neighbor? Two minutes, what would you say to your neighbor? Tell the person next to you who is your neighbor what you would say to your neighbor. Go for it. You've got two minutes, that's all you've got. What would you want to tell them? Okay, right, well, you haven't had two minutes there, but I'm, I'm going to stop you because, um, uh, come on, just out of interest, is anyone willing to say, what you said to your neighbor that you would say to your neighbor with two minutes to go. How many would say, do you shop at Tesco's? <laughs> you see, you don't, do you? So what would you say? What, what, did, you, what did you mention? Were Were you? Okay. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Anyone else? Thank you. That is, that's, yeah. Shall we pray? Shall we pray? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great thing. For what we're about to receive. No, we, no, we won't go to that one. But no, it's, it, yeah, absolutely. Might, might well pray. Do you know what? There are certain things which will come to our minds that we believe are very important that somehow we need to be able to tell people if we're really going to share our faith. Now, I remember going to uh, conferences and hearing talks where a little diagram was um, uh, shown. Some of you will um, recognize something like this, that um, uh, when God created uh, people, he created us to have a relationship with him. And then, of course, something went wrong. And there was this separation between God and man, uh, and that separation is caused by sin, and it leads to death. And so ever since that time, people have been trying to find their way to bridge the gap to be able to get back into relationship with God. And so they'll try it with good works, they'll try it with being nice, they'll try it with various religions, or self-improvement, or awareness, but every single time it falls short. No one can quite be good enough to be able to reach God. And so... God did something about it. From his side, he sent Jesus to go and to be with people, and he became the bridge uh, of, the, uh, of the gap. And therefore, when he died, he died to take away our sin and to deal and overly defeat death. And that means that we can go from man's side to God's side and change color. There we go. You see, now that is what I remember. And I remember having to practice that. And they said, even if you've got a serviette, you can still do it on a serviette in a restaurant uh, and to be able to do that. And um, uh, that, I, 
I have never liked that. I have, to, I have to admit, I have never liked that. I've always felt uncomfortable with it. Now, actually, there are some good things about it. In fact, some of you might well have become Christians as a result of that. And it's simple. You can draw it anywhere, and it contains truth about God. But that also has some downsides, too. Because do you know what that is? That's a presentation. That's not a conversation. That's very limited in that it doesn't start where people are at. It's saying, I've got a formula which I want to be able to pass on to you. And it contains truth, but the gospel is much bigger than just what you see just there. And so Krish Kandir highlighted something which I knew, but I'd never really fully taken on board. And it's this. That Jesus' encounters with people were a conversation, not a diagram or a formula. He took a different approach with every person that he spoke to. And so you find in John chapter 3, uh, a man called Nicodemus who comes up to Jesus and, and he, he wants to know how to um, receive eternal life. Uh, and so Jesus comes out with those words that you must be born again. Do you know how many other times you read in the Gospels of Jesus telling people they had to be born again? <laughs> I can't think of any others. And so Jesus, in that instance, was talking to a very religious Pharisee, a guy called Nicodemus, uh, and he spoke in a way which was intriguing to him. Because, of course, a, a Pharisee would know so much about God. And so Jesus suddenly turns the conversation to something which he says, what? How, how can a man be born again? And, and so Jesus has enticed him into this conversation. And where else do you read about Nicodemus? You read about Nicodemus after Jesus' death. And it's Nicodemus who's part of the team that goes to bury Jesus. So, there's the first one. Jesus talks with him, and so you would think that because that worked really well, he ought to do that one again, doesn't he? Honestly, because if you put an event on and lots of people come, and think, well, put that event on again, won't we? So Jesus must have been thinking, I've cracked it, finally, that's really good. So he then goes out, and he goes out to, um, to get a drink, and it's at midday, and it's just the following chapter uh, of John, and he meets the woman at the well, and he doesn't mention about being born again once. You think, oh, he's blown it. No, he hasn't. He starts talking about living water. And why? Because, well, she was collecting water. She was probably embarrassed to be going out during other times of the day where the crowds would be. So she had gone there. And Jesus gets into conversation with her. And he offers her something which deep down she longs for, which she's been searching for. And she's trying to find it in other relationships. And Jesus reminds her of that and says, but you've been married five times and the man that you're with is not your husband. And she goes, wow, how do you know that? And Jesus says, because you're searching for something. You're searching for living water, something that will satisfy you. And I'm your man. It's great, isn't it? So he talks about living water. He talks uh, about being born again. And then he meets up with another guy. And this guy is, um, he is incredibly wealthy. He's, he's intrigued by Jesus. So he comes and says to Jesus, just like loads of others, you know, what have I got to do to uh, uh, inherit or experience eternal life? And Jesus gets into a conversation with him. He says, well, what do the commands say? And so he starts to recite them. And this rich young ruler 
uh, gets talking and Jesus says, well, you've been a good boy then, haven't you? He does, that's what he says. He says, you've been a good boy because you know, you've named some of those commands and you haven't broken any of them, so well done. So all I want you to do now is I just want you to go and sell everything and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And he looks and he says, can I be born again? Or can I have living water instead? No, he doesn't. Because every single time Jesus takes each individual and somehow he knows their heart and he knows what's important to them and he knows what they're desperate for and he's able to steer a conversation around which hits at the heart of the person's need. So then there is Jesus on the cross and Jesus, as the criminal um, uh, is hanging there on the cross, and he says, uh, remember, Jesus, would you remember me? And Jesus says, well, you must be born again, and you ought to get some living water. And uh, actually, have you sold everything? Um, because whatever you nicked, you probably ought to sell it quick. No, he doesn't. He doesn't touch on anything of that. What does he say in the two minutes as the plane is crashing? <laughs> he just says, today you'll be with me in paradise. I love how every time Jesus spoke with individuals, he picked up on something different. And what he was able to do is that every person is addressed differently, is addressed personally, is addressed appropriately. And Jesus doesn't work to a formula. He doesn't get a serviette out and says, can I draw you a little map here of um, is God on one side and Jesus on, and, and us on the other? He doesn't try to give pat answers to their questions. He doesn't have a list of truths that he must try and force into the conversation. Honestly, I have, um, I, I have grown up believing that there is this package which I need to be able to dump on other people so that they can understand and know and experience what I do. And that is not what Jesus did. And if you've lived with that sense of guilt of thinking, oh, my conversations never go that far, You've been having conversations. Congratulations. It's great. It's great. So how does, and this is what intrigued me, how does Jesus know what to say? Because you see, if I was Jesus, then I would be really clever, and I'd have every conversation over lunchtime with you, and I'd say, ah, oh, well, I know about your job. And I could drop all of those things. How is it that Jesus could know what the right thing was to say? Well, John mentions something that Jesus um, had once said. Jesus said this, The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Do you know what? Every single one of us, if we are Christ followers, have the Holy Spirit living in us. And not only does God transform us to be more like Jesus, he also leads and guides and prompts us regarding being his witnesses too. So when we respond to the prompting of God, and we don't try and force anything by saying, I've got a little package of truth that I want to pass on to you, it's amazing how God can use each one of us. And the Holy Spirit will lead us to the right people at the right time with the right questions and the right words. Do you know what? The most releasing thing that I have ever done is to pray, God, would you give me opportunities? And when he doesn't give an opportunity, I'm let off. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? Because all I need for him to do is to be able to give me the opportunities. Uh, and if he doesn't, then I'm let off. The key objective, in fact, this is um, 
uh, what Paul later um, writes. He says this, since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So just as Jesus could know what to say, you and I can be prompted by God to know what to say in each situation. And the key objective is not to contrive ways to get people saved. Rather, the objective is to walk where he prompts us to walk and to talk with those that he prompts us to talk to, to shut up when there's a risk of us saying too much. I tell you, that is a freeing way to live. Rather than thinking, I've got to tell all of these people all of these truths about God. A lady called Julie Saw, who's part of our church, um, she emailed me about a time when she and her husband, Dennis, uh, were, I think it's in the Lake District. It's um, uh, Orest, Orest Head. Has anyone come across Orest Head? It's either in the Peak District or in the Lake District. Uh, and uh, they were there uh, one autumn, and they saw a couple who were looking really animated, and they were drinking champagne. And the man came over and, and asked them to take their picture as they just got engaged at, at the top of at this place here. And so they took the photos, and they exchanged names and uh, addresses, and they promised this couple, Matthew and Samantha, that they would send them uh, the pictures. And Dennis and Julie moved away to this little brass plaque uh, that was there with the quotation from Alfred Wainwright. Uh, he, this is the guy who had spent the 17 years uh, of his life walking the hills and the, mapping the routes. And the quotation on that was, that day on um, Orest Head changed my life. It was this place, this view, that had started him on his lifetime mission. And Dennis said this, I think I have to go and tell them this because today their lives um, have also uh, been changed too. And at the same time, Julie just knew that God had whispered into her heart, I also want you to pray for them. She said, utter panic came over me. <laughs> and so they went across and Dennis shared about the quotation. Uh, and then Julie said quietly, and would you like us to pray for you before we leave? And their response was incredibly positive. And there on the mountaintop, Dennis and Julie prayed for them. And they were later to find out that Matthew's parents were Christians and they'd spent many hours praying for them both. And this is what Julie um, uh, said. This is about listening to the prompt of God. She said, just to obey the simplest prompting of God can bring the richest rewards. To have ducked out would have robbed them and us of so much blessing. To walk across that room, that mountain peak room, was something neither of us will ever forget. I loved that. It was just hearing the prompting of God. I wish I could tell you that the both of them came to faith and they knelt down there by the plaque and their lives were changed forever. It's just not the case. It's not the case. But it's a small little step of a prompting that God might be doing for others, for Matthew and Samantha. See, Paul writes these words. He says, live wisely amongst those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. It is not our job to convert people. It's not. It is not our job to convert people. It's our job to be contagious, to listen to the promptings of God and make the most of every opportunity because it's God who will do the transforming work. 
There's a book, uh, I don't know whether any of you um, have come across it. It's a book called um, Just Walk Across the Room. It's by a guy called um, Bill Hybels. And in this um, book, he talks about uh, taking a step towards people. Uh, it's a great book. And in this book, um, Bill Hybels talks about an encounter with a man he had one lunchtime. Uh, he'd been speaking at an event, and um, there was this um, African-American with a very Islamic name. Uh, and uh, he was sitting next to Bill Hybels. And uh, during the meal, he suddenly said to Bill Hybels, um, he says, uh, I love reading your books. And Bill Hybels thought, how can, what? And so he says, go on, you're going to have to explain to me, how come you've been reading one of my books? And through his, the, his work, this um, African-American uh, Muslim had been attending work parties, uh, and one of his jobs was to build up business connections. And being black and being Muslim, he'd always been treated with suspicion, and he found it really hard to break into these little cliques. Um, so he would always arrive late, he'd stand around by himself, and then he'd make an exit as soon as uh, possible. And this is um, uh, what he goes on uh, to say. One night, I was at this type of party. As usual, I noticed uh, several small circles of people forming to chat about this or that. I wasn't included, but again, I've become accustomed to the scenario. At one point, I saw a man on the other side of the room engrossed in discussion with a few people of his own kind, if you will. Suddenly, he looked away from that particular group and noticed me standing alone by the far wall. This is exactly how it happened, Bill. He extricated himself um, from his conversational clique, walked clear across the room, stuck out his hand to me, and introduced himself. You know, it was so easy and so natural, the Muslim man continued. In the moments that followed, we talked about our mutual profession, about our families and business and sport. Eventually, our conversation found its way to issues of faith, and I took the risk of telling him that I was a Muslim. I was a little hesitant about how he'd respond. He told me that although he was a Christ follower, but truth be told, he knew nothing about Islam. And you can imagine my surprise when he asked me if I would do him the courtesy of explaining the basics of Islam over a cup of coffee sometime. Can you believe that? He said he was the curious type and genuinely wanted to understand my faith system and why I devoted my life to it. The next time we met, whatever doubts I had about him truly wanting to hear my beliefs were quickly dispelled. He really sought to understand my life and faith. And we began meeting almost weekly, and each time I sat across from him, I was stunned by what an engaged and compassionate listener he was. One week, I even took the opportunity to ask him about his beliefs. I'd been a Christian as a kid, but had left God, had left the faith. Left it all because of the church my family attended was so racially prejudiced. I wanted no part of that Christianity. And when the tables turned and I was on the receiving end of his faith story, I patiently described, or he patiently described, why he'd given his whole life to this person named Jesus Christ. I couldn't believe how easy the conversations evolved and how respectfully and sensitively he conveyed his love of God. Despite our deep-seated religious differences, we were becoming fast friends. It was on this way for some time, as we'd met to hash through nuances of our faith experience. Sometimes he would ask for a couple of days to find answers to my questions. Other times he knew exactly where I was struggling and seemed to have the perfect words to untangle my confusion. There finally came a day, I remember being at home alone when this happened, that I felt totally compelled to pray to God. I kneeled beside my bed, 
told God everything I was feeling, and in the end, gave my life to Jesus Christ. And in the space of about a week, that single decision changed everything in my world. Every single thing. It's a great story, isn't it? It's a great story. One man moving from his circle of comfort, his own little clique, to the zone of the unknown, where, and, and look to where it led. But he started with a walk across a room to shake a hand with a man who was by himself. Do you know what? At some point, I am pretty sure that for many of us here, our faith journey when someone chose to walk across a room to us, who took an interest in us, who invited us, who shared faith with us, who lived out faith in front of us. And lots of other things will have happened on our journey, but it usually starts, whether it's a parent, whether it's a friend at school, whether it's a work colleague, where someone makes the walk across the room to us. And do you know what? The same can be true of others if we're prepared to do the same. Just to walk across the room, to introduce, and to start a conversation. You see, I think as churches... And it's been great to find out more about what's happening within um, the church here. We can be really keen to be involved in our local communities. And I know that what you have done is you've taken the um, decision uh, very wisely, I believe, to open up this church building so that it's used by community groups and, uh, and that. And I think that those kind of things are really, uh, really, really important. You have a mums and toddlers is it a food bank that you have, you operate from here? Yeah. Do you do CAP or anything like that? Any, any money stuff? No, not at the moment. Okay. Um, at, at our church, uh, we do something similar. So at Christmas time, we give away Christmas hampers to families in need all around um, uh, Suffolk. Uh, we have a furniture bank. Uh, we have a hardship fund. And do you know what? All of that is great. And it's okay. But I think we could be missing something. We, we made the decision just recently that with our Christmas hampers, that we always used to deliver them uh, and that we would see the people and we would offer them the hampers. They, they were expecting it. Uh, and then we would come away and we might get a thank you letter or something like that. We've made the decision that every one of those families need to be followed up. And that whenever someone gets a, a gift from our hardship fund, they will be followed up. And it's this whole idea of... It doesn't take much, but to be able to walk across a road to knock on the door and to say, hi, how are you? How, how's life with you at the moment? Actually can make such a difference in starting to build relationships with people. The danger that you will have is that you will have groups that will come in here and they will be closed groups. Uh, and so... Um, uh, they, it is literally just a venue for them. And that in itself, honestly, that is good. But wherever you can be involved, you can then shape conversations that happen. We opened an open access youth work. It's called The Base in Debenham. Uh, up until that point, um, the council had got two part-time youth workers to run the youth club. Uh, and it, there were eight young people who were going to it. And... Um, uh, one of our team visited, and they just hurled abuse at the two youth workers for the whole of the evening. It was so toxic. 
Uh, and so that was closed, and we launched to the base. And so we made sure that we would have a, a number of leaders, but we made sure that those leaders wouldn't just um, uh, kind of contain the young people or, or to make sure that it was safe, but that they would talk to the young people. And we saw it jump from eight to well over 100 young people coming on a Friday evening. And the conversations, so we, we decided we would not have a God slot. That wasn't the purpose of it. If we had a God slot after, then we'd just keep away. And so we just said, this is about relationship building, relationship building, relationship building. And we saw some of those young people coming to church, some of those young people um, uh, becoming Christians. And why? It's because even young people love it when leaders go across and are interested in them and they want to be talked with and they want to share their views and they want to be listened to. So if you have a mums and toddlers uh, that meets here, uh, whether you run it or not, in a sense, doesn't matter. Is there a way that one or two of you could be involved in that where you can just sit and talk with the mums? It's a walk across the room because you could just stay away and let them get on with it. I don't know how it operates, whether it, is it a church one? Is it a church-run one? Yeah? Okay, well, that's great. Then you've got, you've got the easy route in there. But whatever groups look to use this place, are there ways in which you can take a walk across the room, even if it's only with the leaders, the people who book it, that every time they come, that one of you makes sure that you go across to shake their hands, to speak to them, to ask them how they're doing? Because it's out of this that the relationships and the conversations can take place. I believe there are new flats going up here locally. Is that right? Yeah. They're just there, is it? Okay. Then, then why not? Why not a group of you choose to adopt those flats? And that when new people move in, that you go and take them flowers and that you, you take them a loaf of bread or milk or something just to be able to say hi and to find out their names. You can write their names down. You could meet to be able to pray for them. You could look to visit them again. Honestly, the option, that all it is is just walking across the room and saying hi and starting those conversations. The problem is that it has to be intentional. Otherwise, it will always drift. It will always drift. All we're doing is doing what Jesus did. The ultimate walk across the room where Jesus chose to step out of his comfort, um, uh, his circle of comfort of heaven itself. This is what Paul would write. Though he was God, he didn't think equality with God is something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took on the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. In other words, he walked across the room. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. In the Gospels, you find these words, that when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time. I want to ask you to do something very quickly. Here we go. You've played this game before. It's called the balloon game. The balloon is going down, and I want you to introduce you to the five people on the balloon, and one of them you have to throw out in order to save everyone. Have you played this game before? Have you not? Oh, goodness. Right, okay then. So there are five people. There is Mike the mechanic. He is 40. He's married, he's got two teenage children, 
Uh, and if the balloon has problems, to be honest, he is very likely to be able to um, uh, rescue or, or uh, to do any maintenance um, on it. There is Brian, who is the brain surgeon. He's 64. He's married. Uh, he has no children. He's very clever. He's very rich. And he's saved many people's lives through um, the surgery that he's done. There is Bella, who is the blonde beauty. She is 25, single, a little bit helpless, but very attractive and generally cheerful. Okay? <laughs> there is Terry, the teenager, who is 15. He has an ASBO already. He's a bit of a chav, but he's the son of the balloon own company owner. All right? And then finally, uh, we have Pat, the pensioner, uh, who is 80. Uh, who lives in sheltered accommodation, and uh, Pat has angina. Okay, would you just talk to the person next to you? One person has to go out, otherwise everyone dies, okay? So who do you choose to be lobbed out of the balloon in order for it to gain height and so that the rest live? Very quickly, who do you choose? You could throw out more than one. Yes, you're welcome to throw out more than one. Okay... I'm going to have to rush you. I have to rush you. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to call out the name. Now, remember, if you don't throw anyone out, they all die. Okay, so just as long as you're aware of that, everyone dies unless you throw one person out at least. Okay, so who's throwing out Mike the mechanic? Okay, why are you throwing out Mike? Because he should have fixed it. Okay, that is very good. So it's his fault. Okay, that is brilliant. Who would throw out Brian, the brain surgeon? Put your hands up. Okay, then. Yes, so why would you do that? Yeah, that's right. I know. Someone else, someone else can get his money, can't they? Okay, right. That's, that's fair enough. Right. Um, what about Bella? Who would throw out Bella? Okay, we've got a few people there. Why would you throw out Bella? No, I didn't say she was useless. That's shocking. I said a bit helpless. Goodness me. That's terrible. That, okay. Uh, so who else said um, who else said Bella? Yeah. Oh dear. Right. Okay. That's shocking. Right. Okay. Um, uh, what about Terry the teenager? Who would throw Terry out? Okay. <laughs> You're just emptying it, aren't you? Okay. <laughs> who else said Terry? Go on. Who else said? Oh, go on. Why are you saying Terry? Bit of a lad, isn't he? Yeah. I know. So, so what was that? Do they? Right, okay, okay, right. What do you mean, even Pat? Right, okay. Uh, then we've got Pat the pensioner, who's 80. Who has thrown Pat out? Oh, my word! My word! Right, okay, then. Okay, why would you throw... Come on, Paul. Why would you throw um, Pat out? Right, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Any, anyone else got another reason? Yeah? Yeah. Well, that's right. Okay, well, isn't it great? Uh, Mark, are you picking this up? Are you, are you kind of getting the sense of, um, yeah. <laughs> okay, basically, all, all we were doing that for was this, is that we all hold a value system regarding people. And it might be based on wealth, it might be based on religion, on age, on gender, on looks, on clothes, whatever. And actually, Paul highlights this. Let's come back to this. While we were utterly helpless, Christ um, came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Do you see the value system coming in now? 
Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. Do you see that there is a, he's talking about a value system that most people have. And then it carries on. <clears throat> but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jesus' value system is so different from many of us that he stood out from the crowd in his compassion for all people. Thank you for getting cross. Thank you. Thank you for getting cross. Absolutely. Because you see, Jesus walked across a room to a leper and he listened to the leper and he did something that no one else would do, that he touched the leper and said, be healed. He walked across, to a, uh, walked across the room to a woman who had been caught. The guy was nowhere to be seen, but she'd committed adultery with this bloke who was nowhere, but, but she was dragged out to be humiliated and to be stoned. And Jesus restored her dignity, and he forgave her, and he called her to a different lifestyle. He walked across the room, um, or across the street, to a little guy in a tree who was desperate to see Jesus. Uh, and the religious leaders were shocked, and they were saying, what are you doing eating with this guy? He's a tax collector. That's that. You'll often read that tax collectors and sinners, and that's because tax collectors have their own compartment of bad sinners. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's what it means. They were so, and yet Jesus walked across the road to meet with him. He walked across the room to ordinary people, to people in need, to people who needed love and grace. And he walked across the room, do you know what, to you and to me. And his passion was to see lives transformed. You see the example that Jesus sets for us. That's why if you've got flats being built, why don't you? Walk across the room, get involved, get to meet the people who are moving in there. And out of that, grab every opportunity that God gives. And God will prompt us. I promise you, he will prompt us. I am, I am a prompted man. I am. But that's by my wife. She says, have you done your flies up? Have you got a tissue? No, honestly, she's not my mum. She is my wife. But, uh, but, you know, being prompted, I tell you, God will prompt us. He says this. I'm finishing just with this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then he goes on in this. You will be my witnesses. Why has he given us the Holy Spirit? So that we can be his witnesses, telling people about Jesus everywhere. And then he talks about the area spreading out and spreading out wider and wider. Can I say again, it's not our job to convert people. It's not our job to convert people. It is God's job to do that. Our role is to listen to the promptings of God and to make the most of every opportunity. And our role is to walk across the room, to value people, to ask questions. Don't go with a package of truth to dump on them. Go and listen to people's stories and to take the opportunities to point people to Jesus whenever they arise. And I will promise you that if you pray for that, that's one of the prayers that God will answer. Honestly, he will give you opportunities to share the love of Jesus with others. So can I ask that we stand, because uh, we've got to the end. And there's just a prayer. I'm just put on the uh, screen here. Just have a quick read through that prayer.
we want to follow the words that Jesus said, which is to go into all the world and make disciples. This is the kind of prayer that God will answer for us. Father, my life is in your hands. Would you use me to point someone towards you today? And I promise to cooperate in any way I can. And if you want me to say a word for you today, I'll do that. And if you want me to stay quiet but demonstrate love and servanthood, by your Spirit's power, I will. I am fully available for you today. So guide me by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.